Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. In the studio, joining me is Dr. Ian Mendenhall, and Ian is the principal research scientist of emerging infectious diseases at the Duke NUS Medical School. What a timely moment to have somebody with your expertise on the radio today. Ian, welcome to Weekend Mornings. Oh, thanks so much, Glenn. It's really a pleasure to be here. Great to have you on. And, and while you're not specifically working on COVID-19, we won't necessarily talk directly about that, but let's, let's talk more broadly about uh, this crazy infectious world in which we live. There's stuff all around us all the time, isn't there? Sure. I, I mean, viruses and bacteria are all over the place. And me as a parasitologist, this is really interesting to be kind of living in the, the space and time of this new coronavirus outbreak. So as you mentioned, I'm with the Emerging Infectious Disease Program, just a little little vocab to, to start with. Sure, you know, yeah. Emerging infectious diseases. Tell or, us what it all means. Yeah, it's viruses <laughs> or bacteria we really haven't seen before, or they've been latent for a while, and now they're re-emerging, or they're setting up shop in, in new geographic localities. Mm. You know, and a lot of these emerging infectious diseases are, are zoonoses. And zoonoses are viruses and bacteria or other parasites that can be transmitted between humans and animals. Mm. Now, we saw, obviously, SARS. We saw uh, the bird flu uh, back in Hong Kong back in the 90s, yeah, late ne- 90s. Nipah virus. Nipah virus. And a lot of these things, you know, these things are out in the world around us all the time and have been for I, what I say maybe millennia. I don't know how, how long it goes back. But um, why do we only see these things come up and come become important to humans every now and then? Or is it just we just happen to notice them more often at certain inflection points? Yeah, that's certainly an important point is like our laboratory capacity has gotten a lot better. You know, our tools to detect these are a lot sensitive. If you look at how long it took them to detect SARS versus this new coronavirus, people were sequencing the virus really quickly, which allows us Mm. to understand where the virus comes from, how it's spreading, how it's transmitting between people. And, And so just living in this day and age, we're really fortunate that we have these tools at our disposal. And if, if you look at Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia is one of those regions in the world that's kind of predicted to have a more zoonotic spillovers. So we have these viruses and bacteria and animals that are jumping over into humans. And it, it happens more than we think, but you don't see kind of sustained human-to-human transmission. Hmm. And there's a few reasons for that. So hmm. Southeast Asia has really high mammalian diversity. So there's a lot of mammal species. So if you have a lot of mammal species, you have a lot of viruses in all those rats, bats, you know, primates, all of those things. There's also a lot of land use change. So we're changing our environment. We're bringing humans in closer contact with animals, both by through um, agriculture, but also, you know, a lot of consumption of, of wild animals takes place in Southeast Asia. And yeah. we're bringing these animals who are stressed into close confines into relationships that they haven't really experience before. You know, one of the one of the misnomers that came out in recent weeks was the this idea that it was proven to be false. So I just want to point that out, but the the uh, videos of people eating bat soup on YouTube and it turns out the the videos were actually taken in Palau anyway, which is thousands of miles away from from Wuhan. But this idea that if you actually just eat something that you can get a virus from it. Does that work? Or does there has to be something in between, right, that links the two species if they're two different species? Is, sure. It, it, how does that work exactly? Or It depends. A lot of it is like if you're, if you're going to eat some wild animal, a lot of it is how it's prepared. Yeah. I mean, if this thing is roasted, you're probably not going to be at risk of exposure. But the people who are catching the animal, the people who are preparing and cooking the animal, they're going to be the ones who are kind of at the front line of exposure. Yeah. And so if you go, you can go to these kind of wet markets around the region and you can take blood from people who are catching these animals or processing these animals and you can see evidence of exposure. Uh-huh. Um, but again, 
it kind of takes that right virus to be able to jump over. There's a group in Wuhan at the Institute of Virology, and, and they've been studying bat coronaviruses for a really long time. And they see evidence around these caves where they're sampling of people getting exposed, but there's not this kind of sustained transmission. So you see a lot of opportunities for mm. spillover, but the rates of success are really low. But when they happen, they can be really catastrophic as evidence with bird influenza. Yeah. Is it? Is it? You, you mentioned you, they, they see kind of traces of this in the samples that they take. Is it because the, the sample or the virus hasn't gotten strong enough at that moment to become a problem and that's why the people can carry that? Or is it almost like they're being inoculated because they get small doses of it? you know, every now and then. It, it could be either because it's really hard to study these systems in, in real time. Mm. But but a lot of times, we're just not a good fit for a lot of animal viruses. Okay. I mean, I, I was talking, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my, my, I got two cats at home. I'm sure my cats have their own community of bacteria and viruses, but yeah. I'm just not a good fit for them. So I may be getting exposed, but those viruses really, they don't have the means to, to replicate in me. Yeah. And so what we see with a lot of these bat-borne viruses is they really don't often jump directly from bats to humans. Uh, they often need kind of an intermediate host where the viruses go through this bottleneck and they kind of feel around inside that host and get more used to it. And, and that's what we see with this COVID-19 is it, it mm. looks like at some point it picked up part of a pangolin coronavirus and it picked it up on the virus surface proteins. And that's what allows the virus to get into the cells. And this kind of picking up and the mutations allowed it to be able to, to infect humans. And we're still going to wait and see, is, is this going to burn out or is this going to become some seasonal pandemic coronavirus? This could be another one of the many flus that, you know, type viruses that we deal with on a yearly basis, perhaps, right? Yeah. Is, so that, is that the thinking? There is. And so we're all kind of waiting and wondering, and there's kind of seven human coronaviruses, four of them circulate annually, and then the other two SARS and MERS, those SARS kind of burned out. And MERS is really more of a camel virus. You don't see sustained transmission from human to human. You see it in hospitals, but a lot of the people getting sick are the ones who already have pre-existing illnesses. Yeah, yeah. I was speaking with uh, Dr. Ian Mendenhall, the principal research scientist for emerging infectious diseases at Duke NUS Medical School uh, right here in Singapore. Uh, this is such a fascinating topic, and there, there's so many questions I want to ask. First of all, let the... Uh, if I can just ask you a broad question about uh, COVID-19, because that's, since that's on everyone's minds, the processes that the scientists go through, that they're going through in Wuhan and at the CDC in the U.S. and the CDC here in Singapore and elsewhere, do you, from what you've seen in your daily work, are they pretty much following the regular steps to try to figure this out? And where are we in that process to try to figure out, first of all, the, the cause and then uh, a possible, you know, cure, vaccine, whatever it might be? Where are we in that big, in that big long arc of, of looking at a virus? Sure. I mean, in, in terms of people who study infectious agents, you always hope to kind of learn from the past, right? So yeah. what, what lessons did we take from SARS? And, and I think the the response, you know, globally, everyone's been quite open in, in terms of sharing data. And that's been really important mm -hmm. because we need to get this data out to the experts who can analyze it and understand what's going on. And as I mentioned before, there's a, a group in Wuhan and they found a bat coronavirus that's very similar to this one. And they had collected it in years past and they had that sequence sitting there and they had that sample sitting in the freezer. So because of that, we were able to 
uh, well, not me, but other scientists were able right. to create like a virus family tree. Oh, and so you can start to say like, okay, just from the genetic sequence, does this look like a virus that is associated with other viruses that have jumped into humans previously? Yeah. Or does it kind of sit in the part of the family tree where we've never seen these kind of spillover or, or jumping species events before? Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And, you know, I was watching the, uh, the, the film Pandemic uh, <laughs> over the, the past week. I just had to do it. You know, when we see some of these dramatizations uh, uh, in Hollywood, and there have been a number of them, when you watch these types of movies, do you just kind of shake your head and go, no way, that's not going to happen? Or, hey, you know what? Actually, the science they did on that was not their advisors weren't too bad on that. Or, yeah. you know. Yeah, it goes from just the absurdist, yeah. right, to, to films that people actually contact scientists and get their insight. And so if you look at Outbreak, you know, the Dustin Hoffman right. monkey movie where it's aerosol transmitted, like that is not a scenario that we're going to experience. But if you look at Contagion, mm. I mean, they actually reached out and had some prominent virologists who were providing insight. So as someone who studies viruses watching that movie, I can see that the, you know, the script writers took a lot of time to actually Get present, it right. present a story, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. kind of like a docudrama. Yeah, interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about your work. Now, you look at emerging infectious diseases that originate in animals. You, specific, you specifically look a lot at bats and rats. And tell us what you learn um, as and what you're looking for when you do your research and, and how you actually go about doing that research. Sure. Um, well, I've been working with bat and rat kind of biosurveillance, so that's looking for viruses and bacteria in Singapore since 2011 and work with a variety of partners in country. And we're interested in some of the known players, right? Some of these, there's some virus families that just seem to be better than others at spilling over into other species, including humans. Mm -hmm. And then there's other viruses that they're just quite happy in their single species home. And, and you don't see that spillover happen very often. So what we're doing is we're trying to understand kind of the ecology, like where are these viruses occurring? What bat and rat species are they occurring in? And over the course of a year, are there any seasonal um, trends that we can we can look at? Because I'm really interested in trying to do smart surveillance. Mm. Right? You can waste a lot of money throwing this big net out there, trying to catch everything, trying to sample everything. But if we can kind of identify hot spots where we believe that the vertebrate reservoirs, the animals that naturally carry these viruses, will occur, and then where the viruses should occur in the landscape, we can proactively go and sample those populations and kind of understand mm. what are the trends that are going on. Yeah. Are there some key takeaways that you've learned so far since 2011 that you've been working here that would be interesting or relevant to Singaporeans? Sure. Well, uh, back in 2016, we published a paper on a bat coronavirus that we found in, in one of the fruit bats here. Again, from the genetic data we have, it looks like a coronavirus that is in a group that has never jumped over to humans. But for me, it's important to understand why these viruses aren't dangerous. Mm. Because then we start to understand what tools do the viruses have to be able to spill over. So if I detect a virus that's, that I, I perceive to not be of risk to humans, what characteristics about that does it have? And then for future surveillance, can I look for those characteristics in other viruses that might inform me that, okay, this group of viruses isn't important. Yeah. The second part is if I find viruses that may not be important to human is they start to fill in that virus family tree like I talked about. Yeah. Is The more we look for viruses, the more we find and the more we understand about virus diversity. And really, it's there's been some recent work done. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Now, you've been traveling. You travel around quite a lot. You were in Cambodia recently, uh, just this past week, was it? Uh, yeah. To look yeah. at some bat, some bat stuff. Uh, what's happening there? So um, our project, we've got a five-year project in Cambodia. We're trapping 
bats and rats all over the country. And we're trying to make these probabilistic heat maps Mm. for both the bat and rat species and then also the viruses and bacteria. Because we want to have a map where we expect certain regions to have a higher probability of a dangerous pathogen existing. So after our grant is done, you know, then the Cambodian government or another agency can come in and start to fund surveillance that's specifically focused on those those regions. Yeah, and once let's say you catch a bat in Cambodia, what do you do with it? Sure, it was well, the same <laughs> or thing. Rat or whatever. Yeah, it's the same thing we do with it in Singapore. Um, yeah. So with bats, the easiest way to catch most of them is to put out a, a mist net, and so these are nets that are really fine material. The bats can't see them, and they fly into them. We take them out. We weigh them. You know, we see if they're uh, a male or female. We see if they're they're pregnant or they're lacking. And then what we do is we take an oral and a rectal swab, and then we take a little bit of blood from them. And then if it's fruit bat, we give it a bit of mango juice. Um, we'll often take a picture, and then we'll uh-huh. release it back into the sky so it can go um, continue feeding for the night. Wow. Okay. That's quite a process. How long, how long does it take to, to, to do one sample with uh, one animal like that? So it really depends on how, many, how big your team is. Yeah. So I've yeah. gone out there with just a couple people, and it takes a lot longer. But when you get down to it, I mean, you can, you can process an individual bat in about probably five to seven minutes. But obviously, we want to take care that we're not hurting the animal. You know, obviously, bats are super important. That's another takeaway message is oh. we don't want to be pointing the fingers at these animals as culprits. I mean, bats are amazing pollinators. They, uh, they eat so many pest products. Mm. All these insects that are eating our crops, bats are feeding on those. So they're a huge service to our, to our ecosystem. So we don't want to demonize these animals. That's really important. Yeah, yeah. And when we think about these viruses, you know, one of the things I, I knew some, uh, the head of the CDC in, in Atlanta a number of years ago, and the one thing he always said was, you know, nature always finds a way, right? It, it is, it is singularly focused on success. Um, and when, when we look at that, that's kind of an ominous thing for us humans to try to try to think about. Um, because if we think about that in terms of viruses, viruses are always going to try to find the way to, to you know, promulgate, to do what it is they do. Is that something that we should all lose sleep over? <laughs> I mean, on a, on a regular basis, like nature is coming after us and we better be careful what we do, whether it's the coronavirus or something else. Yeah, I'd like to flip that around. I think nature should be scared of us. Okay. Um, I think in, in terms of how we're modifying the landscape, that's yeah. leading to a lot of these spillover events. You know, obviously, a lot of these pathogens can be scary, but it's really comforting to be in Singapore where you have really good contact tracing. You have people who are cleaning surfaces that are touched often. So I think just some general hygiene for, for folks, you know, that information goes a long way. And the Straits Times has been really good at that, mm. putting that little flyer on the front page saying, like, if you're not sick, don't wear a mask because really we need to save these for the medical professionals. So yeah. for me, I don't think we should lose sleep over them, but I think we should always kind of keep, keep an eye out for them. And, you know, viruses, they mutate. But yeah. some of those mutate, mutations are bad for the viruses and some of them are neutral. Some of them, they, they mutate and, and they don't. But viruses make a lot of offspring because they want to have a lot of different Variants to be able to kind of explore their hosts and see which one works out best. Yeah. Now, what's next for you and uh, and the program at Duke NUS and and the infectious diseases that you're looking at? Sure. Well, obviously, there's a lot of interest in the the new coronavirus, COVID nineteen, and I have a lot of colleagues who are, who are working on it. Very interesting that um, there's an application going out, and Singapore Duke NUS wants to apply to to produce a vaccine for this new coronavirus, which could be very important if this does end up being a a seasonal. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but we also just want to understand kind of the the transmission dynamics of this virus and and understand what the virus is doing and and what what are its requirements and, and how can we intervene. 
What do you think, uh, sorry, just one last question about the potential of putting together a vaccine for uh, COVID-19. What would that process look like? And, and do you think that we might be getting close to figuring that out at all? Or Sure. How, how much more work needs to be done before that can happen? Well, the technology has advanced really far where you can start to make a, a vaccine quite quickly. The, the issue is we always have these human Bio, biosafety issues where we have to ensure that the vaccine is not going to do more harm than it does good. So those phase trials often take a long time, as they should, because we don't want to rush and put something on the market that could be causing harm. Yeah. There is a, a center called CEPI for this epidemic preparedness, and they have a lot of money that they are providing to research groups to produce vaccines for a lot of different infectious agents around the world. So they're putting out funding calls right now for this new coronavirus. And uh, it would be great to see uh, Duke NUS to, to play a part in that. Yeah. And, and and finally, I know I said that was going to be the last question. This is the last question. When you look at Singapore, you've been here now since uh, 2011. And it's my understanding that Singapore is really uh, pushing very far and very fast ahead in these types of investigative procedures and scientific procedures, everything from stem cells to to the types of uh, emerging infectious diseases, uh, your work as a scientist and you've worked in uh, you know in different places around the world in the U.S. and here, how do you rate the ecosystem in Singapore for the research that's being done across a broad variety of issues? Sure. So, I mean, I would speak to most of my experience, but just kind of the ecology of, of disease transmission. So what's going on in the animal populations? You know, I've, I've worked with AVS, I've worked with national parks, I've worked with folks at, at NUS, and, and it's a real collaborative environment. And so for me, it's been great where I can send out an email, and we've done this with some of our findings, is get some of the major players in the room and discuss our findings and see how do we want to disseminate these events. So because a lot of times scientists have trouble communicating, right? You put out a lot of jargon or you put out like a keyword and, and people freak out over it. So it's really important that you, you make sure you get a, a message that is easily digestible, mm. but also contains all of the kind of the factual information. But, you know, for me, I've had such an amazing time in, in Singapore via the research and the program in emerging infectious diseases has some amazing investigators. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of it. Well, Dr. Ian Mendenhall, Principal Research Scientist for Emerging Infectious Diseases at Duke NUS Medical School here in Singapore. Thanks so much for being with us on Weekend Mornings. Oh, it's great. Thanks so much, Glenn. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.